Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lush, joined this time by Mike Lawson and Taryn Sharma. What's up, boys? How's it going, Dan? Mike, good Good to see you guys. So we decided to bring the gang back together. We had a uh, Major League Baseball lockout episode with Evan Drellick of The Athletic very recently. Uh, And Evan, uh, as our listeners will remember, said there was a 99% chance uh, of a lockout. That was not necessarily a bold prediction. I think everyone across uh, baseball, across sports, across the law was predicting that. Now, that said, we are here and we had a lot change between, you know, a lot happened. Not necessarily changed uh, since our, our last time. We had a flurry of deals. So we should talk a little bit baseball, but, you know, guys, we had to bring the gang back together. We have some stuff going on, football, college sports. So we're going to talk some baseball. We're going to talk some Antonio Brown being suspended for a fake Vax card. The Vax debate, uh, I guess, is kind of back. And then we're going to talk the coaching carousel going over in college. Why tortious interference with the contract does not seem to apply in the world of the NCA. Before we get started, guys, how's it been? How's Thanksgiving? It's been a bit. It was good. Got to go home, spend time with my family. That was awesome. The Mets signed Max Scherzer. I was excited about that. It's been pretty good. Gophers won the axe. That's always important. Taryn, where's home for you? I feel like you, you look like a journeyman. You live everywhere. No, just uh, outside the D.C. area. That's where my family is in Virginia. If Not people don't follow Taryn on social media, Taryn goes to like every sporting event. Like you, you're just like a <laughs> frequent flyer. You are everywhere. Condolences to uh, the Duke Blue Devils. Perfect season for Mike Shevsky's last year. I, I apologize, Taryn. And I think you know this, but my sister goes to Ohio State. My fiance's family, they're big Buckeyes. So Hadley, my fiance is like sitting here celebrating in my face while I'm like yelling at the TV because Duke can't run a half court offense in the last like 10 minutes of the game. So and, and when you was, mean, uh, when you say yelling at the TV, you mean crying hysterically in the corner of the room. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mike, your Yankees were a little bit quiet in these past couple of days. They've done absolutely nothing. I was going to chip away at Jason because we had a back and forth because Syracuse took down Indiana and a nice double overtime win. So I was very excited about that. The Yankees uh, doesn't surprise me one bit. I, I feel like Cashman got wind that they were going to do a lockout. So he was like, nah, my time is up. I'm just going to go on vacation. So he's, he's done nothing. Is okay. it a Cashman well, problem or is it a Steinbrenner problem? Are the Steinbrenners, do they not have money anymore? Well, ever since the luxury tax went up to, what was it, to like $60 million, they were so afraid to touch that ceiling. So They've just tried to stay below the luxury tax. I don't know why. Maybe they have this pool of money that they're just like willing to just throw out eventually. But even though the Yankees have done absolutely nothing, if you want to be proactive, you definitely need to check out themisbar.com forward slash con detrimental. We've said this before on our podcast. We are sponsored by Themis Bar Review. They are the greatest bar review company out there. Taryn announced that he had signed up with Themis Bar. Stephanie successfully passed the bar using Themis Bar. So definitely want to be proactive like our team members here and check out themisbar.com forward slash con detrimental. And they're running a special promotion. If you use that link, you'll get up to $1,000 off the current rate. So definitely check that out. So the rundown, very clearly, we're going to talk some Major League Baseball lockout. We're going to talk Antonio Brown, and we're going to talk some coaching carousel. Okay, so Taryn, let's start with you. We all kind of knew this lockout was happening, but December 1st came, you know, we think kind of some half-hearted last final offers, and then the lockout finally occurred. 
So for people that, that are kind of living under a rock right now, if you go to your favorite baseball team's website, there are no pictures of players anymore. We have blank avatars. And Taryn, your Twitter page, I was on it earlier today, also has an avatar for your face. I, I appreciate that. And hopefully everyone, everyone <laughs> follows what's happening. But as part of the lockout, you know, you can't have players' names up there or players' images up there. You can't have news articles about players. So there's all these weird, like, evergreen, like, historical articles on team sites. So it's the first time in the modern internet era that we're dealing with this last strike obviously occurred in 1994. But Taryn, I know you're following this closely. What are we hearing from Manfred? What are we hearing from the Players Association? Yeah, Dan. So Commissioner Manfred released a long letter today that if anyone's been to MLB.com, it's just a very bizarre look right now. They can't talk about any active players. So I think like the most recent player that they're talking about is Ichiro. And then if you if you look at the other things they're talking about, like the 92 or 93 World Series and uh, and some other things, it really just reminds you of what any professional sports league is without the players that play it. And it's really barren. So Commissioner Manfred on MLB released this long letter and kind of outlined a lot of the things that we've been talking about. So key things that the owners were looking for, they're looking for greater cost certainty. They want to get as close to having a salary cap as they possibly can. And that, that doesn't mean that they are actually proposing a salary cap, but things like lowering the luxury tax threshold which acts as sort of like a chilling effect or asking the ARB eligible players to take a salary based on an algorithm from a set pool that is tied to revenue. Those are things that have common factors with salary caps that we might see in other leagues. So uh, on the other hand, the players are looking at this and they want to get to free agency faster. Okay. We've seen in the last 10 years as decision-making has been more data-driven that younger players are definitely prioritized because they're cheaper, because their performance is, is more efficient to what the dollar cost is for their performance, but also just that big contracts aren't necessarily being handed out. And in this letter, commissioner Manfred says, you know, we've had this giant run on free agency. Well, the reason is recently that, teams have been falling all over themselves to sign the top free agents is because they don't know what the system is going to be like when we come out of this lockout. The reason that they have been offering these big deals is because they knew that they weren't going to be able to negotiate when the lockout happens. And now the lockout has happened. And I I really want to stress this. There was nothing that said that Major League Baseball, the owners had to lock the players out. They've called this a defensive lockout. I think that 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 terminology is a little bit flawed. Defending against what exactly? This is an offensive lockout. They want to put pressure on the players to make an agreement. The players, to their credit, have shown some solidarity, and hopefully they're going to hold out for the deal that's best for them. Listen, they're the ones that are putting their bodies on the line. They're the stars. They're the ones that people show up at the ballpark to see. What would baseball be without Trout or Harper, Otani, Juan Soto, the Max Scherzers, Jacob deGroms of the world? Those are the names that we know. And so those are the people that I think that the public is going to side with as well. Mike? I think to highlight and go off what you're saying, so Max Scherzer is on the subcommittee. When he signed for that, I was like, wow, he set like an insane precedent. Three years, $140 million, average annual $43 million a year on top of the $15 million a year that Washington Nationals are paying him from his old contract. So he's making buku dollars here. So good for Scherzer, good for the Mets. So 
Scherzer's on the subcommittee. So when he signed, I was like, we are definitely destined for a lockout because he's sitting in on those meetings. He knows what's happening. He knows that they're getting nowhere. So he's like, I'm going to sign now. I mean, granted, he is older. So at the end of his contract, he'll be 39. So it's a great deal for him regardless. But once he signed, I was like, that should have been a signal for all other agents and all other players to like flood. And, and that's what that we saw right after that. We saw Seager's massive contract to the Rangers before that was Simeon too. But we talked about this on the last episode. We talked about with, with Evan Drell. There was going to be this, what is actually happening right now is a freeze in all transactions. And, and people are thinking just free agents, but it's not just free agents. It's arbitration. It's the rule five draft. It's every single transaction. There are no communications, nothing. Players can't even go to the facility to work out because that's owned and operated by the teams and that's the league and that's, you can't do it. Like you, we're seeing it on the petty level of the players changing their pictures on Twitter to the silhouettes because major league baseball can't use the name image and likeness of their players because they don't have an agreement. So they can't do that. They can't profit off of that. So we're seeing it in so many different avenues, but what really gets me going is the fact that Manfred is saying blatantly like, I've never seen such drastic demands, right? He was calling them, he said, this is collectively the most extreme set of proposals in their history. Yet the things that they're talking about, if you listen to Bruce Meyer, who's the union's lead negotiator, if you if you listen to some of their demands, it doesn't sound so radical. Like we talked about this with Evan Drell. They're talking about moving the arbitration year from three years, once you're in three years to to start arbitration, which means you have three years of arbitration eligibility before you're a free agent, dropping that back to you could be eligible after two years. If you look back previous to 1987, that's how Major League Baseball operated. They did a two-year, two years in the league, then you started arbitration. So they were like, that's not radical. That already happened, and we're trying to go back to that because we want to get young players money faster and more money that's besides the point of of getting them to the market faster and whatnot so we have not necessarily just a difference in opinion but a difference of like how they're seeing the results to this so i don't know how we can get to any sort of resolution within the next three months let alone the next month so somebody asked me you know do i think this is going to be resolved soon and i told them no i don't not because i'm some fortune teller but you have to just remember leverage right like this got to a lockout. You know, what, what, what's really the harm for the next couple of weeks? I don't know. Players aren't, weren't going to be at the facilities anyway. Maybe they would be calling their trainers for some some type of healing or, or whatever else. But, you know, who, who it really hurts are like the Kyle Schwarbers of the world. And Taryn, you and I spoke about this offline. There's this weird story developing. Obviously, there was a flurry of moves, as Mike mentioned, because players wanted some security, wanted to know where they'd be, you know, because if the lockout ends, like we'll say mid-year, or like with one week to go before the season, teams might be inclined to say, hey, what well, you know what? We're good. We're, we're going to, you know, we'll give you pennies on the dollar. Um, we're not going to do that. So you had this flurry of moves. There's this weird story brewing with Justin Verlander, who apparently signed a $50 million deal over two years. So that was like, you know, there's like Twitter deals. And it's like, oh, yeah, he, Justin Verlander signed a deal. And all of a sudden, I saw a report from Heyman that's like, yeah, it was never made official. So, again, it's unclear what happened. But Justin Verlander appears to be a free agent. There are a lot of big names that are out there. As for as many big guys that sign very quickly, it's kind of cool. Maybe we should think about that for our next offseason, have some type of initial deadline. So we have some, you know, some now these flurry of deals are certainly good for baseball. Here's, I guess, moving forward, what, you know, people are trying to figure out when this is going to come back. There's really no rush, right? It's going to at least 
exist for the next couple of weeks and months. Players weren't going to report anyway. What, what I'm hearing, uh, at least from Jeff Passan with ESPN, who's all over this, he says, like, in addition to uh, obviously who wants a piece or bigger piece of pie, you know, the players, teams. My understanding is that one of the big things for the owners is they want extended playoffs, that they want, I guess, some version of the playoffs. I heard at least one proposal that was floated out involved the higher seeded teams being able to literally pick the, the team that they wanted to face in the playoffs. It wouldn't be automatic seeding. Like I remember this past year for the Giants, it was really annoying. Like um, Taryn and I are, are Giants fans, San Francisco Giants fans. And like they had the best record in the NL or, you know, and they, and they had to play the Dodgers. It's like, that's not fair. Dodgers, but Dodgers and Giants both had over hundred wins. So like, wouldn't it be more fair if the Giants could pick their own opponent? And like, meanwhile, in the old version of baseball, Division division foes never used to play each other. So I'm not sure what happened. I don't think anybody necessarily happy, was happy with the Giants playing the Dodgers. So that's on the on the team side or the league side. They want more revenue. They want more playoffs, which I don't know. I don't know why the players necessarily be opposed, but they don't want it. Maybe because they know that the league wants it. And the other side, Mike, you touched on it. For your first three years as a major leaguer, you're essentially a minimum wage player. You're making about $500,000. So I remember it's pretty blatant with Mike Trout. Mike Trout was basically the MVP of baseball and he was getting paid essentially minimum wage. So I think they want to try to allocate more money to those first three years of, of service. You know, you have Max Scherzer's in the end who have hit free agency, but your bulk of major league players or professional baseball players will not even make it past those first three years. So it's only fair to try to get those payers played. That's what's going on. I don't, I don't really see any rush on getting a deal done. So, you know, but for fans, I, it's not going to shorten the season, uh, at least at this point, until we have this going until... February, March, I don't see this necessarily shorten the season. So yeah, it sounds like a really scary lockout, but right now nothing has really happened. So, you know, other than the silhouettes popping up and the articles not being written about your favorite players, nothing really has changed. Yeah. And I'd say that they probably have like 11 or 12 weeks to reach an agreement here before it's actually going to start affecting around the time that that pitchers and catchers report. And again, Evan Drellick said that there's like an 85% chance that we don't miss any games. And so that's what his guess is. So hopefully that's the case. Hopefully we don't miss any games because baseball was was really good this past year. It was nice to have the ballparks filled again. And, and that's something that Manfred said as well. As far as expanding the playoffs, I just want to say one quick thing. that I put that in the basket of proposals that really aren't that controversial. I feel like both sides can agree to that as long as well as a universal designated hitter. I, I don't think that baseball really wants to see its best pitchers going out for extended periods of time because they get hurt swinging the bat. So I think that there are a couple of things that they probably have common ground on, but they're both trying to use these things as bargaining chips. Another thing that I thought was solid that MLB proposed was free agency age. So you're worried about, we talked last time uh, with Evan about manipulating service time. Well, if a player is a free agent at a certain age, say 29 and a half, then that's going to disincentivize a team from messing around with service time because service time isn't going to be what determines it. So I think that there should be some common ground. I think that the lockout does put pressure on it, but it's a really drastic step. And I hope that this doesn't send us two steps back before it gets us one step forward. Two things before we, we transition here. I think what you just said with the, the service time is an interesting point because, again, that's a point where they were having conversations about it, but they're so polar on how they're interpreting what that proposal means. Because what you just mentioned was the five-year service time when they're when you're a five-year vet or hit 29 and a half years. That's, that's the proposal that the union 
made. And initially, I think it was 30 and a half, and then it dropped to 29 and a half or something like that. But on the flip side, the league are so polar that they want more control. They want longer control over a player. And there was even the, the, the talks of completely getting rid of arbitration, which is very interesting because Drellick last week said that he's like, I don't think that arbitration will go away completely as we come out of this. But yet that was a rumored proposal that the, the league had made. So it's very interesting here. So I think it's good that we're in a lockout now and not February because that point we're getting close, like really close to the, the spring training area. And if you look at the history, like we keep, you know, you've seen all over the news, this is the ninth lockout or strike that we've seen in major league baseball. But if you look at the history, a lot of them are like right before spring training, or they end up losing a couple weeks of spring training or all of spring training. And it, it leaks into like the first week or opening day or things like that, or, one of them, you know, obviously we have the 95 one where you lost the whole uh, back half of 94 and 95 was a, a shortened season. So it gives them some time to discuss things. It's more just kind of shocking that they did the lockout, calling it a, a defensive move. But regardless, in other news here, transitioning now, we have a couple of weeks ago, there were rumors that came out about Antonio Brown's former chef. I'm going to highlight the word former here, former chef said that he got fake vaccine cards for Antonio Brown and his girlfriend. That created a buzz around the league, and they started doing an investigation. And what we have now that just came out was a three-game suspension for Antonio Brown, as well as Mike Edwards and free agent John Franklin. So all three of them on the Bucks team were found to have produced fake vaccine cards. A little interesting fact here, all three cards had the same exact county in Florida and the same exact date in which they got their vaccine. So pretty obvious that they were colluding or working together. Maybe that that former chef got them for him too, if Antonio Brown was talking about it. The biggest thing here is three games is a big precedent. That's They set a precedent here to make a point. We have something that Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Players Association are not doing right now. The NFL and the NFLPA are agreeing that in terms of COVID and COVID protocols, they're, they're on the same page here and they want to protect the team's. They want to protect players and family. So they're definitely setting a big precedent here. I'm going to transition this to, to you, Dan. We talk about all the time that the NFL likes to save face or they don't like to be called out or they don't like to be, you know, Goodell. We saw Gruden in the emails. Gruden was like ripping Goodell apart. And, and then they went all in on Goodell. So we see this on freezing cold takes, which is a friend of the pod. He tweets out the NFL tweet that said like, congrats, like the Buccaneers have a hundred percent vaccination status. And now we see the NFL absolutely drop the hammer on them. So what do you think about the situation? I missed that from our, from our friend, uh, from our lawyer friend, freezing cold takes. You know, I, I remember when the story came out, it was so odd. Like the story was the, the allegation a couple of weeks ago was that Antonio Brown from the fake chef, as you said it, Got a fake vaccine card. So you had two people all of a sudden get really loud. You had the Bucks who put out a statement, and I, I have it from, from Schefter. I said, all vaccination cards were reviewed by the Buccaneers personnel and no irregularities were observed. I'm like, that's odd. The Bucks aren't saying that Antonio Brown didn't use a fake. It says no irregularities were observed. So that's like when you were, you know, 21 or 22, or maybe you were even 19, you're going to a club and you had a fake ID, like, and the bouncer didn't check your ID properly. He's like, oh, no irregularities are observed. Go on in. Like, so all, all the Bucks did was acknowledge that they didn't properly check the card. So I don't know. I don't know why the Bucks. Some, sometimes if you don't have anything smart to say, don't say anything. So the Bucks look really dumb. And the other one 
was Antonio Brown's lawyer, who I, I forget his name, not, not a friend of the show. I mean, maybe he is if, he, if we heard of him, but he basically came out and said, Antonio Brown is, is vaccinated. He, he's, he's not hiding anything. He's vaccinated. So it's like, okay, no one cares if he's necessarily vaccinated. I mean, I guess they, people do care about that. But the allegation wasn't whether or not he was vaccinated. It was whether or not he used a, a fake vax card. So, you know, his attorney, his team weren't really having his back. And then what do you know, he gets suspended here. So, you know, the three musketeers, really the three-headed monster, the reason that the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl last year, Mike Edwards, Antonio Brown, and that other guy that no one's ever heard of. Now, it's not going to affect the Buccaneers. So that's, that's I guess, number one. Mike, the, the point that you bring up is, I don't know, how does it fit into the larger culture of NFL? So Antonio Brown uses a fake vax card. I think he is vaccinated. I think that's at least what his attorney's saying. So then you have Aaron Rodgers, on the other hand, who, you know, in his own sense, broke NFL protocol. He was told to wear masks at, at certain points in time. The reason the media thought he was vaccinated was not just because he said that, like, Taryn, what did he say when they asked him, are you vaccinated? I'm immunized. Yeah. They go, are you vaccinated? He goes, I'm, I'm immunized. So like, that was a little weird. So obviously people thought he was vaccinated from that. But the, the I guess, physical reason people thought he was vaccinated because he wasn't wearing a mask when, you know, vaccinated players were supposed to have been, or unvaccinated players should have been wearing a mask. So I guess Carson Wentz does that. So people, that's how people know that Carson Wentz is not vaccinated or this is what I hear. I don't, you know, I could just tell you if someone wears a mask, at least under NFL protocol, that usually means that they are unvaccinated, but you know, maybe people are just playing it safe. So Aaron Rodgers gets a slap on the wrist. He gets a very, very little fine, no suspension, you know, for essentially, you know, lying or misleading the media, misleading fans. The thing with Aaron Rodgers, which is interesting, is he didn't lie to the Packers. The Packers knew he was, he was not vaccinated and the league knew he was unvaccinated. Antonio Brown's a little bit different. You know, the league, right? Uh, I guess he lied to them by presenting a fake vax card. So I don't know. They're, they're obviously different. I just find it odd that Rodgers gets no suspension and a slap on the wrist, and Antonio Brown gets three games. Is Aaron Rodgers getting less of a punishment? I don't know. Uh, what do you guys think? I could be swayed this way. I'm not sure. Let's throw a little criminal precedent in here. Antonio Brown's a predicate. The NFL's sick of dealing with him, so they're just going to give him what he deserves here. They, they, he's gone through the ringer with suspensions and fines and every, you name it. So it doesn't surprise me one bit that they, they throw it on him. Mike Edwards, to, to go to your point too, I guess Mike Edwards team is also saying that he is vaccinated now and he's, you know, whatever, sorry or something. I don't know, but uh, Antonio <laughs> sorry, Brown, he's sorry or something. And Antonio Brown's lawyer says like Antonio Brown's using this time to, to heal his ankle. Like, yeah, he just didn't want to get into the, the long, drawn-out battle of it, apparently. Antonio Brown's uh, attorney, I looked him up today, is a former Formula One driver or something like that. So it would be interesting to, to have him on the show, actually. But Whoa, we're not going to bury the lead here. Who, who is his, who's his attorney? Danny Rick? Pierre <laughs> no. Gasly? Uh, no, I see it now. It's Fernando Alonso. Got it. You guys are not Formula One people. I'm, I'm, you're not reacting to any of these Formula One drivers I'm mentioning. No. I just said I just said that he's, he's going to make the move to Monaco too. It just makes the most sense for his family. You that Monaco is not a team, Mike. I don't know. I don't know if you, Monaco, Monaco, Monaco you is a track. That? Yes, I I understand that Monaco also has no tax implications, so drivers live there, so they don't get you know high taxes. How do you How do you know that, Mister? I don't root for. I don't follow Formula hey, One. I watch every Saturday. I keep up with everything. Are we Lewis Hamilton fans? Love. I have a large wager on Mercedes winning the Constructors Championship, so I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan for the for the time being. Gotcha. Um, well, uh, yeah, not to get too far off topic, but so 
the thing that I took from this is that you never mess with anyone who's making your food. And this is just like an extension (laughs) of that. Like he obviously scorned his former chef in some way and his chef got him back now. So he was, he was clearly in the wrong. It's weird that we're seeing this though. Brown and, and these two other guys did it. Evander Kane did it. It's an odd thing. Okay, I think we should move on to our third topic, our third and final topic. This one, I've had a lot of fun with this week. You know, I just, I think it's a fascinating topic. So, you know, every year it happens. It's the coaching carousel in college football. It's uh, people checking flights. It's a fun time. People understand, and it's just, it's been this way for as long as I can remember in college sports. In the real world, if you work for a particular employer, another company is not allowed to come and just blatantly poach you without some type of fear, right? A, some type of fear, right, that you might have some type of non-compete clause. That's number one. I had a friend, I'm not going to get him in trouble here, but I had to look at his non-compete clause. He was going from one financial company to a different financial company. He asked me how I thought his non-compete would play. So, you know, that's number one. That usually prevents you from moving. And then number two is this fun tort that, that we know very well, tortious interference with the contract. If you have a contract, if person A has a contract with person B and person C comes in, they start waving a bag of money around. They said, hey, come on over here and you break up that contract. That's the tort of tortious interference with the contract. So either way, either, either one of those two, you know, two versions, right? You break your non-compete or tortious interference, your employer has some type of cause of action to, to sue, right? And get some money. Now, in the world of college coaching contracts, particularly in college football, schools, I mean, I, I, I understand it, but the, these normal legal principles do not apply. There is no such thing as a non-compete for a college football contract, right? Coaches just go and they compete. They can go and compete in the same conference if they want. And when it comes to tortious interference with the contract, we just saw Lincoln Riley, right, jump ship from Oklahoma to USC. Oklahoma is a top, top program. And now, you know, they are left without a coach. And, and meanwhile, Notre Dame and Brian Kelly, right? He's been there. I did the, I was looking up his stats, you know, yesterday. Guy was at Central Michigan. Then he went to Cincinnati and he's been at at Notre Dame for 12 years. And the team is on the, maybe a potential CFP, you know, like making, making the playoffs. They have 10 wins, the number six in the country. And he leaves to go to maybe, I mean, I don't know if, if LSU is necessarily better than ND, you know, but in any event, here we are, right? Even if your team does really well, your Oklahoma, your ND, it doesn't matter. School is going to back up the Brink truck and they're going to convince you to leave. And there's nothing that your own school can do about it. Even if they want to be like James Franklin, right? And pay you a ton of money to stay at Penn State. If a school comes with more money, James Franklin's going to leave and there's nothing Penn State or any of these schools can do about it. Taryn, you're, you're a, I think, a bigger college football fan than I am. I don't know. What do you, what do you think of Brian Kelly in particular? I, I have a feeling you have some thoughts on this. Well, I think that Coach <laughs> Kelly did what was best for his family. How about that ridiculous who's, accent? He just developed Butch, it in two who's days. Who's Butch Kelly? No, Coach Kelly. He, <laughs> down in the great state of Louisiana. He's, uh, he's got a new accent. Come on, man. I was going to say, where was Brian Kelly's Bayou accent in the four-minute goodbye speech he gave to his, <laughs> yeah. uh, his players? Exactly. How about he didn't that? even, he didn't even mention short? LSU in that speech? Could you imagine if he did it with a southern accent? Listen, people will leave places, jobs for money. It's it's fairly obvious. I will say that the LSU job is better than the Notre Dame job because you get to uh, recruit. Yeah, you get to recruit from the best base of athletes in, in the entire country. That's 
Louisiana is just chock full of great athletes. Uh, I mean, the last three coaches to coach there have, have won a title. I think, listen, if the coaching staff was just the three of us, I think we could go down there and win 10 games. No, they're that good. No, I, no. I agree. You're, you're right. The last, well, who's the last three, Nick Saban, Les Miles and Coach O. So yeah. he's, he, he was, it's a smart move in that aspect. He definitely has better recruiting talent. And that's the thing that he's missing. And it, it, you think about his resume, he's won a lot of games, but he's never won a title. You want a good shot at winning a title. Basically you beat Alabama there or, or even maybe you wouldn't even need to with the 12 game playoff. You'd just be in there. I want to say also with Lincoln Riley, I was almost a little bit more surprised. But with OU's move to the SEC, there's some talk that might have affected his decision to wanting to go to the Pac-12. The Pac-12, it's not necessarily that there are no great teams. Oregon is solid. But there is a bit of a vacuum that the great USC teams of the mid-2000s have left there. So I, I think that that will be an easier place to, for him to win, almost certainly a better place to live than Oklahoma. And again, the, the base of talent in Southern California, all of those recruits that were going to go to, to Norman for Coach Riley, now he's got them in his own backyard. So I think that that's massive. And I understand why the fans are upset. And, and I think that there is a solution. Um, and if you're not following Brendan Bell on, on Twitter, he's one of the contributors. Our guy, to Brendan our Bell. Our guy Brendan. He is, he is a, a really great follow if you're interested in college sports, but he was talking about this, the, the idea of maybe having like a free tampering period where coaches can basically have a, a carousel. And, and if you want to, leave your job, then that is the time to do it. And we do that before we get into the, the, the brunt of the recruiting schedule. Because the reason why all of these moves happen right now and the reason why it kind of left a, a team like OU high and dry or Notre Dame high and dry is because now is the time when coaches go in home with their recruits. So if you see uh, on Twitter, all of these coaches are across the country going and visiting their commitments, going and visiting the kids that they want to join the class. This is just like such a critical time for recruiting. So I think that that tells you why Notre Dame pulled the trigger and brought uh, former Ohio State linebacker Marcus Freeman, who is currently serving as their defensive coordinator for the uh, is in his first year. They made him the head coach, and and why is that? Because you can end up keeping a lot more of the recruits if if the guys that are out there recruiting are are sticking around. Mike Notre Dame played Stanford. And they were out in California. Wasn't Brian Kelly like re recruiting for Notre Dame Monday night and then flew back to Notre Dame to then have that morning meeting with the players to say he was yeah. leaving? At what yeah. point did, did he make the determination that he was leaving? Because if you don't read The Athletic or subscribe to The Athletic, I highly, I highly suggest it. Um, our, our team member, Dan Wallach, founder Dan Wallach, is, is a contributor to The Athletic. So there's a really great article in The Athletic that breaks down what happened with Brian Kelly. And it's very confusing because Swarbrick, I believe, is the Notre Dame's athletic director. He tells – he calls Swarbrick Monday, Monday night, Monday afternoon, that he's resigning. And I don't know if it goes any deeper than that that just says he's resigning. And then Tuesday we have the report that he's going to LSU. So it's very interesting just the way that Brian Kelly did it. And Dan, you had some back and forth about whether or not yeah. this is a good move. You know, 
what about the college kids? And people were talking about, well, just in the private sector in general, it's fine to just jump around. But I agree with you where it's a different scenario and it's a bad outlook as a coach. If I'm a player and I see that, that, that hurts his recruiting chances. This is where I wanted to take us. I mean, here's the thing, you know, we are obviously are all sports fans and we're all, you know, Mike, you and I are lawyers, Taryn, you're, you're soon to be as well. Like I just, you can just be a sports fan to understand this. Like Brian Kelly may, maybe did the, the commendable thing in some sense. He's leaving, obviously, for the money. He's getting $100 million from LSU. It's a ton of money. I guess that's the larger point of this conversation. The, the coaching contracts keep going up and up and up because schools are paying a ton of money to protect their coaches because they know someone's going to throw even more money at them. So college coaches aren't going to complain about any of this. So Brian Kelly, you can't really feel so bad for him. He's getting $100 million from LSU. If you want to believe Taryn, it's a great school to recruit at. It's obviously New Orleans is a great place to be beyond anything else. But, you know, he kind of, Brian Kelly faces the music and he goes and he calls a 7 a.m. emergency meeting to speak to the Notre Dame kids. And, you know, they, these kids wake up early. I was listening to a podcast with, uh, with Chris Long recently. And he was saying, like, the fact that the kids had to wake up early, you know, for this is, is probably, you know, that's probably number one. You know, like, we have to wake up early. Coach is coming to give his final goodbyes. People are probably expecting some big rah-rah, you know, I loved fighting with you or whatever, whatever it is. And I listened to it, right? It's not really important. I, I don't think it's as important what he said. It's just how long he spoke. The guy spoke for about four minutes and change and then left to no applause and then just walked out. So, you know, part of me, Mike, you're, you're fact-checking me. There's three minutes and 42 seconds. I'll, I'll take your word for it. E either way, it leaves a lot to be desired. So I said, you know, if you can spend 12 years at a program, you probably owe them more than three minutes and 40 seconds, about four minutes to say goodbye. So someone said, maybe rightfully, I'll, I'll take a good point if someone wants to come back at me. I said that was not the proper way to say goodbye. And he goes, well, what would be the proper way to say goodbye? So I don't know, right? I, I think if you're going to speak to the kids, like, and I keep saying kids for a reason, somebody yelled at me for saying it, but I think it's right. If you're going to speak to the, the students, people that you've recruited, you know, your kids, right? You're like the father of the program. You're the surrogate father. I think you owe them more than four minutes. You don't owe really them an obligation to speak to them because it's a, a business. But if you're going to speak to them, you might as well give them more than four minutes or, or what's the point of doing it at all? It's, it's kind of lame. The silver lining is this new NIL era and player empowerment era we're in. Now, when a coach leaves in the old days, and I was, I just did a show earlier tonight with um, Tony Bruno and Sean Salisbury. I didn't know this. I guess back in the old days when you wanted to transfer, if you wanted to transfer to another school, would you have to sit out one year? So if you were a freshman, you'd have to sit out. You couldn't play for a year. I guess in the old days, if you wanted to transfer within the conference, you had to sit out two seasons, which I, I had never heard of. So nowadays, two seasons, no way. One season, no way. There is a one-time free transfer. You can go to any school. So if your coach screws you, if you're Brian Kelly, if you're Lincoln Riley, you go into another school. So here's... um. I'm going to give you guys a hypothetical, which hasn't happened yet, but I, I would just find it so awesome. This report in, in Lincoln Riley, one of the star recruits that had committed to Oklahoma is now, you know, decommitting and he's going to follow Lincoln Riley over to USC. So that speech that Brian Kelly did, right? You know, Brian Kelly's an, old, an older man at this point. I think he's in his late 60s. He might even be in his early, Taryn, you can fact check me. He's, he's at least in his, his mid 60s, if not older. I think it's his last coaching gig. So what if Brian Kelly said to the room, Hey guys, it was great being with you. And who's coming with me? Let's go to the Bayou. Like, I, it's a lot of trust to allow Brian Kelly to speak for those four minutes. So I'm thinking maybe this will be a thing of the past. The one-time transfer rule, Brian Kelly could have just given the ultimate pitch for those students to come with him to LSU. Maybe it's a missed opportunity. No one in hell is going from Notre Dame to LSU now. Uh, well, it's just not going to happen. 
I can push back on that one. So in terms of recruits, I mean, we saw it with Notre Dame. They already lost their four-star defensive back recruit, Devin Moore. But in terms of prospect and prospective student-athletes, the NCAA has a rule. It's called IAWP, Individual Associated with a Prospect. And you want to talk about non-competes. This is probably the closest you can get to a non-compete. It prevents an, an individual who's an associated with recruiting a prospect from going to a school and bringing that recruit with. This was established a few years back. And when I worked in Syracuse, I did a ton of work on it. And this isn't just with coaches. It's with any staff that's, that's hired for the athletic department. So say I go to, say I'm a head coach in Notre Dame and I want to pull the strength coach from USC and that strength coach from USC has really good ties with a couple of the O-linemen. And I'm like, Hey, I need some O-linemen. Let me pay the strength coach more money, bring him here and have him grease some of the O-linemen to transfer. Now that rule is there was rumors that they were going to try to loosen that a bit. It is very strict. And, and I remember every time I did this a ton when I was at Syracuse. Anytime we hired anybody, even like tutors who were tutors for the for student athletes, we had to make sure that they didn't have a tie with any of our recruits or prospective student athletes that we were going to get from the transfer portal because that would be a, an NCAA violation or we'd have to report that. And there's some sort of suspension, I think, for the whoever we hire. How is that working then at, at USC? Lincoln Riley has gone there and a quarterback who was committed to Oklahoma to play for Lincoln Riley, decommitted the day that Lincoln Riley announced. And then today he committed to USC to follow you can Lincoln de- Riley. You can decommit if you haven't signed. There's people who, who make informal, oh, okay. so it's not signing day. So they're not actually – the the true I, – I can't remember exactly, but I think the true like significant feature of like going to that school is like signing the financial aid. Like that's like the the big signature. You can like verbally commit. And then like even, I think you can even sign your, and I can't remember, I don't want to speak off the cuff, but I think there's like, there's rules where you can sign the NLI back off as long as you didn't sign the financial disclosure or something like that. Cause there's two signatures that you have to like officially be with the school. So with decommits, it's different, but I can see something happening where there could be IAWP like violations here. And, and the school can also release you from your commitment too. They have that option. Not every school does it, but a lot of schools, if they're undergoing transformation, they will. We can put a pin in it there, but I, I do think that it's interesting that the, the salaries have gone up so astronomically. I think that that's directly related to the, the TV deal. It'll be interesting in the future if we end up with you know some form of unionization where the players get some piece of the, the TV revenues in the future, if that sort of controls the coaching salaries from where they are now, because, you know, all respect to Mel Tucker, he seems like a nice rah-rah guy, but $95 million, he hasn't really won anything. He, he's been at a couple stops and hasn't won anything big. Uh, Lincoln Riley lost all four games in the playoff. Brian Kelly, his teams weren't really competitive in the playoff. So it, it's going to be interesting to see if this continues, especially, you know, if in the future we end up with some sort of super league are the va- the value of showing up in the playoffs, if it's expanded, is that lessened? It'll be interesting. Dan? Speaking of super league, as we, we wrap this episode up, we had a very big episode on this podcast a couple months ago, super league symposium. So I had that idea in the back of my head, super league, soccer. We don't really cover that much soccer on this podcast. You guys know this, and hopefully everyone listening to the podcast knows this. Obviously, I'm, I'm the uh, sports law professor at New York Law School, 
I did tell students at the school, I did tell my class, I did tell the people that hired me, if they were to hire me, uh, that I would try my best to bring a competition to the school. So, you know, there was the two-lane baseball arbitration competition that I competed in. I helped create the Ford, uh, Fordham's National Basketball Negotiation Competition. And then later on, the Villanova created a football competition. There was a hockey competition. But for 10 years, no soccer competition. So coming to you February 11th at New York Law School, slash it actually will be over Zoom. It's not actually at the school this year. The first ever soccer negotiation competition, a worldwide competition. We have international students that have signed up as of today. I don't know if I should say this. I don't want to jinx it. We, we have about 16 schools that have signed up across the country, across the globe. So if you're, you know, we only really planned for 16, but with the amount of interest we got, I think we're going to open it up, maybe make it 24, 36, whatever, whatever we need to do. So, you know, I love when I competed in base, the Tulane baseball arbitration competition, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, why did this not exist in high school? Like, why did this not exist in college? So yeah, I guess baby steps, but for people that are soccer people, soccer freaks, we're in the process of, you know, recruiting, recruiting judges. If you're a practicing attorney, you need some CLE credits, happy to hook you up. But yeah, certainly reach out to us if you want to compete, you want to judge. Yeah, the, the New York Law School Soccer Negotiation Competition. Again, the first ever of its kind. Pretty sweet team, right? That's awesome, Dan. You're making a huge difference there. And uh, I'm very jealous of the students that get to take your sports law class. You can compete in the competition, Taryn. You're certainly eligible. Okay. No, Taryn, I, I, it's a commitment from you. I just saw that. that was a... <laughs> <laughs> I think that'll about do it, guys. Any, anything else? I think we're good. We were, you know what, Taryn? Actually, I have some sourcing coming in. Are you ready for this? Sources yeah. tell me that by the time this episode comes out, you will have had your birthday. Yeah, that's right. I'm turning 28. It's weird. Because when my older brother was this age, I thought he was so old. And it turns out that this is not old at all. And uh, I'm very young and very happy. So I have a birthday present for you, Taryn. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Can you please, you know, actually, you know what? Here's your present. You are allowed to uh, tell everybody your favorite sponsor of this podcast. Oh, yeah. Actually, my favorite sponsor of this podcast is Themis Bar Review. Themis Bar Review is so nice. You know, they have this Themis Cares program. And I'm lucky enough, the firm that I'll be working for is going to be taking care of my bar prep uh, course. And so Themis will allow you then to share a free bar review course with somebody who's going into public interest work. So I was able to do that with a, a nice young woman at the University of Minnesota Law School today. And she sent me a nice email. She's like, I got to bake you some cookies or something. I was like, that's very nice. Taryn, the, the other answer to that question uh, about your favorite sponsor could have been. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it. I wasn't gonna say it, but I said it to my class. We got a nice note. I'm not gonna. Not gonna get too much into details. We got a very nice note from the one, the only, Cleveland Guardians. Not the baseball guardians. We got a note from the roller derby guardians. I had the original guardians. The original guardians. I had been mentioning to you guys that I had been speaking to some people within around the organization. I had not spoke directly to the organization because they had, were engaged in uh, active litigation. Let's just say our, our messaging from uh, the Cleveland Guardian saga was heard by the roller derby team and uh, they wanted to express their gratitude. So uh, I, they are listeners of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you are a Cleveland roller, roller derby guardians team member, shout out, shout out to the OG guardians. And I think on, on that note team, uh, I think we're ready to put this episode in the books. I am Dan Lust. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Sports Law Lust. Mike is at Mike underscore son of underscore law. And Taryn, the birthday boy, is at TK Sharma Law. 
for all of us here, for Wallach, Stephanie, Jason, all of our contributors, we wish everybody a very happy holidays. We hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental. Yeah.